Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. My name is Rob Breckenridge, in for Roy Green. Certainly, it's hard to think of uh, a more consequential situation in recent memory when it comes to Canada-China relations than the situation with the two Michaels, which, of course, uh, followed the arrest in Canada of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Clearly, the uh, arrest, the detention of the two Michaels was in retaliation to that. Uh, But there is a bigger story here in terms of Canada-China relations how it got to that point, and what the follow from all of this is likely to be. It is the subject of an important new book. It is called The Two Michaels, Innocent Canadian Captives and High-Stakes Espionage in the U.S.-China Cyber War. Joining us this afternoon is uh, one of the co-authors of this book, Mike Blanchfield, the international affairs writer for the Canadian Press based in Ottawa. Mike, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Well, of course, the two Michaels are back home. They are, are safe and sound back here in Canada. But obviously, there, there's a lot to learn about this whole situation, why it came about in the first place. Uh, what got you and uh, your co-author, Finn Osler-Hampson from uh, Carleton University, uh, interested in, in telling this story? Well, Rob, um, as you mentioned off the top, I'm a reporter at the Canadian Press, and I cover international relations. And so um, I was covering this story pretty much from day one as a news reporter. Uh, right after the arrest of Meng, uh, in, the, in the interim days when we were wondering, is there going to be uh, another shoot-a-drop, which did. Uh, and um, so I was basically on the story for quite a while, and uh, Fen and I spoke about uh, wanting to do sort of a broader story to, about why this happened, uh, a book. Uh, Fen was very, very seized with this idea. He's in, you know, uh, an international relations specialist. He's written numerous books. He's a professor... Uh, you know, he's been the chair of an international commission that studied the Internet um, a few years ago. So we um, we decided to pool um, our, our pool our forces. Basically, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reporter, journalist who covered the story, We've talked to lots of people involved in it, uh, all sides of it. And uh, so we came together about a year ago and started working on the book. And we wanted to do this, um, get it done quickly, because when we started on the book, it didn't look like the two Michaels were going to be coming home anytime soon or that Meng's mm-hmm. case would be resolved in the British Columbia court. So we, we thought, well, let's write a book. Let's get what we know on the record. Let's put it out there for Canadians and as many people as possible, and maybe it'll stimulate some discussion. Uh, it'll um, remind people of why this is happening, and and who knows. But uh, but, but just as we were finishing literally going to press with the book, um, the issue got dramatically resolved, as we all saw a couple months ago. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. And, and I think now we know their names, we know their faces. Let's talk about, you know, in the lead up to December of 2018, when their lives changed forever. Uh, did they know each other? What were they involved in doing? To what extent were they on China's radar? Well, they were both active in China in different ways. Uh, Michael Kovrig uh, was a Canadian, is still a Canadian diplomat. He was on a leave of absence from the federal government to work for a, an organization called the International Crisis Group, which studies conflict around the world. They write reports, they talk to people, and they try to find ways to peacefully solve the world's problems. And so Kovrig had spent uh, a, a number of years as a seasoned Canadian diplomat. He'd been posted to China previously as well. And he was on his way to, from Hong Kong and had arrived in China to do more research. He talked to Chinese officials. He got the Chinese side of the story. He wrote, uh, you know, contributed to this, uh, to this, uh, you know, in- institute that, uh, you know, tried to basically make the world a safer place. He was a, he was a peacemaker, a writer, is, I, I assume. Uh, Michael, Michael Spaver was, um, um, he's just a really interesting sort of entrepreneur, I guess, is the label people put on him, and that's what we call him, but he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's born, born in Calgary, basically became fascinated with, uh, with uh, the Korean Peninsula at a, at a young age, moved to North Korea, uh, traveled there, uh, and eventually spent uh, extended amounts of time there, set up uh, a consultancy in, uh, in a Chinese city, uh, Dandong, near the North Korean border, and did a lot of uh, exchanges of people and 
and basically facilitating trade, uh, p- not trade because there's none, but uh, just just people traveling back and forth to North Korea because he just, you know, as it's been as it's described in the book and as he has said publicly before all of this and, pe- and the people who know him, he just basically fell in love with the people, the country. Uh, he got to know Kim Jong Kim Jong Young, the, the the dictator pres leader of North Korea, in a very dramatic trip in 2013. He uh, Kovrig was uh, sorry, Spavor was basically the fixer for uh, former NBA basketballer um, Dennis Rodman, uh, wild, crazy ex basketballer, tattooed, uh, outspoken, yeah. uh, wanted to go to North Korea and visit them. <laughs> And visit the power, and he did. And Michael Michael Spavor was in the middle of this. He had the connections. He speaks fluent um, fluent um, Korean by all accounts, and he made this happen. He's the fixer. He was kind of the guy in the middle of it all, making it happen. And he met, um, you know, he he was you know posted on Instagram, you know, having drinks on the uh, North Korean leader's um, um, yachts. It was it was just it was almost surreal. Uh, anyway, so both these men had uh, you know by all accounts. Uh, Spavor wasn't a political person. He, uh, he he just was really interested in this place. He was hoping to be on sort of the, the ground floor, I think, if um, if one day North Korea somehow opened up to the world, if, if there was reform in some way, people could go in, make business. He wanted to do business. He was plugged in on the ground. And, uh, and, he, and many, many times he demonstrated, he wrote and talked about a genuine affection for the North Korean people. So Meng Wanzhou was arrested in December of 2018. It's nine days, eight or nine days later, uh, when the two Michaels are arrested. What, was there a specific reason why China targeted these two? Well, China says that they were spies. And Kovrig and Spavor and everyone around them and Canadian governments and Canadian Western allies say they weren't. Um, so, but as, you know, as, as, we, as we know, they, I mean, they lived interesting lives. And they were connected to the region and uh so the, it's you know the, the west and the, the the families of of these men and just about everyone who is not part of the chinese government has viewed this as a, a, a arbitrary retaliation a tit for tat um basically you know in a, a hostage taking to put leverage on canada to um end the meng extradition case which came about because the americans enforced an extradition treaty with canada a legal instrument and said, "Hey, this this person is passing through at the Vancouver airport. Where we want to charge her and put her on trial in, in the United States for fraud. Please arrest her for us, and uh, we'll begin the extradition proceedings to have her brought to the United States." And that enraged the Chinese government. Meng is um, she's the daughter of the founder of Huawei, who is um, basically a, a national icon in in China. Um, uh, she's considered sort of um, business royalty, and uh, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese government blew a gasket and uh, said, "You can't do this." They were enraged, and then nine days later, uh, two Canadians are in prison. Yeah, and it wasn't just that she was facing charges. I mean, Huawei itself is is still facing uh, fraud charges in the United States, and so so this all becomes very strategic as we look at the future of the internet and the future of five G, and it's still a looming decision for Canada with regard to Huawei and five G. So, uh, aside from obviously yeah. Meng Wanzhou's profile in China, what was so strategic uh, to China and China's interests about this whole situation? Well. The, the the U.S. government, 10 years before this, going back to the Obama administration, identified Huawei and its um, its its reach and its um, its ability to uh, deliver 5G internet. Uh, they they see that as a security threat. They say that Huawei is linked to the Chinese military, uh, and that the, that if Huawei you know establishes the 5G networks of the internet that we're all going to rely on very soon and are already but the internet of the future the internet of things it's called is you know could power autonomous vehicles all kinds of right. all kinds of stuff artificial intelligence that this is this will somehow be connected to the this is somehow connected to the chinese military they'll have a back door they'll be able to control the internet in in, in the western world or they'll be able to shut it down or shut down banking or whatever anyway Bottom line, the Americans saw this as a, as a strategic threat. Um, when Donald Trump came along, carried on the same policy. Um, but instead of going after the company itself and charging it and trying to shut it down and perhaps cripple it economically, um, 
on, you know, the Trump administration decided to arrest this person, this top executive, and personalize the case. And just one more thing, too, is very important. The Chinese completely deny this. They say there's no way we're going to do this. Uh, and they accuse the Americans of basically just trying to cripple a, a, a top Chinese telecom company that is cornering the market on delivering you know, 5G Internet and the Internet of the future. Yeah. Well, and it sort of highlights what's been a, a long time dynamic between Canada and the U.S. and Canada and China. I think our approach to China over the years, so even going back over the last three decades, has differed from the, the Americans' approach. But at the same time, I mean, that, that relationship between Canada and the United States is close and is crucial. What, what does this tell us about, you know, how Canada is maybe uh, at odds at times when it comes to uh, China as far as the Americans are concerned? Um. I think the, the the big lesson that this that, that could be drawn from this uh, on, on that point is um, when this happened, Canada was very much alone on the world stage. They were a small country. They were, yes, they were acting on behalf of their American friend and ally. Um, but there wasn't a lot of initial support from the Trump administration about the predicament. It was nothing publicly said. Donald Trump was sort of browbeaten by a group of shouting Canadian reporters in the White House in 2019. I was there. I was one of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a G20 summit coming, and Xi Jinping, the president of China, was going to be there. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was going to be going. And hey, we were shouting, you know, we were shouting questions. It was one of these vintage Trump photo ops that's supposed to be, you know, a few minutes, and it turned into a 15-minute press conference in the Oval Office with the Canadian side shouting questions. Are you going to go to bat for Canada? Are you going to help talk to the Chinese and help get these guys out. And Trump just at one point sort of shrugged and said, it's all in the book, you know, word for word. <laughs> he basically said, yeah, said something along the lines of, yeah, I'll see what I can do. And it was never really clear what he did or how hard he tried. Uh, what changed is when the Biden administration came, Joe Biden and, uh, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met very early on uh, in 2021 after he was inaugurated. And Biden basically said, these guys are American. We consider these people American citizens and they're bartering ships. And uh, but it took eight months for them to, to get to the point where they took the necessary step of withdrawing the, the actual charges against her. And as you alluded to earlier, they're proceeding against the company. Uh, and so they, they they did this deferred prosec prosecution agreement DPA. So the Americans dropped the charges in a Brooklyn court against Ming. Three hours later, in a Vancouver courtroom, after years of extradition hearings and volumes and reams of you know, evidence being presented and just, you know, massive amount of, of time spent in court. A Canadian, you know, prosecutor acting on behalf of the Americans goes before a senior judge of the British Columbia Superior Court and says, yeah, well, we're withdrawing the charge. Thank you very much. And three hours later, uh, there, you know, Meng is on her way to, on her, on her way to, to China and the two Michaels are on a plane crisscrossing, the, you know, on their way back to Canada uh, across the Pacific Ocean. It was, the planes took off, like, literally at the same time. Yeah, it was quite remarkable how it all played out. Now, you know, I mean, more or less American policy has not changed. Canada's in, in a situation now where I think we need to decide on our, our policy direction. Maybe the situation with the two Michaels sort of led to, you know, inaction. We were kind of frozen just out of concern for them. Where do you think this all goes from Canada's perspective now? Yeah, very much so. It was kind of in um, in the... Uh, I guess limbo is, is a good enough to, uh, no shorthand mm -hmm. for it. Uh, but, I mean, the first thing they have to do, Canada's got to do, is decide on their 5G policy, who the 5G um, partners will be, and basically exclude Huawei. But, I mean, the, the market on this has already decided. Huawei isn't selling anything in Canada anymore. Uh, other companies, of um, European companies, have, uh, have partnered with Canadian providers. Um, you know, Huawei equipment is being you know, stripped out of the networks. The market has spoken in Canada. It just needs to be a political decision to say we're going to join our top allies in the intelligence uh, Five Eyes network. You know, the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand are all have all turned off Huawei uh, and, uh, and saying we're done. That's the immediate thing. The long term is, um, I mean, Canada is very much going to be engaging with China because every country has to engage politically with China. But I think it will be less ambitious and more uh, selective. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge market. It's a manufacturing giant. It's, uh, it can't be ignored. On the other hand, um, the Americans want to see sort of a more of a firm China policy, I think, from Canada. They want to see a clearer statement. They want to see something, you know, a, a clear direction stated because 
you know, they want Canada on side, and they were so entwined in this whole issue. Uh, and the other thing for Canada right now, uh, independent of that, is the, a real concerted effort to uh, make trade deals with other Asian um, you know, Asian countries and trading blocs. Just last uh, few weeks ago, uh, you know, Canada announced that they were uh, entering free trade talks with a, with a bloc block of Asian countries called ASEAN, and, and it's got that includes three big countries, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, that can broaden Canada's you know, trade um, you know, ability to, uh, you know, to, to, to trade with beyond, you know, other treaties we've gotten and other, through other alliances with South Korea, Japan, um, and of course, you know, with our North American, uh, you know, neighbors, and we have our European free trade deal, so it's this whole, like, diversification uh, don't rely yeah. so much on China. Try to be more resilient. Try to be try to build more things in North America. That was all. That was the whole theme of this, you know, Three Amigos Summit with the Mexicans, the Americans, and Canadians just just a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, how can we do it within North America better? Be you know less vulnerable to outside forces. And that's you know, it's just it's not uh, China cannot be ignored. It's too big. Uh, it's gonna. It's always going to be there. Where people will need to do business with them. Countries will always be able. Will have to. But it doesn't mean they're the only sort of vendor, customer, you know, trade opportunity out there anymore. Certainly a big story today, the big story the last few days, and how big a story it's going to be going forward, I guess, remains to be seen. But we now have a fifth variant of concern, and this could be the most problematic one yet. This was Canada's health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, yesterday announcing the steps that Canada was taking to respond to this. They will quarantine until they get the result of a negative test. They will then be allowed to go, if the test is negative, they will be allowed to go and quarantine in a safe and appropriate manner. They will be tested once more on day eight until they finish their quarantine. That was uh, in response to questions about what we're going to do for travelers, anyone who has been in that region and is traveling to Canada. We're also moving to ban flights from South Africa and a number of other Southern African countries. This variant, though, has shown up elsewhere. Belgium, Israel, Hong Kong, the United Kingdom today confirming its first two cases of this variant. Let me just play for you. This is a couple of minutes uh, from earlier today. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing these findings and announcing some additional steps that the United Kingdom is going to take. As always, I must stress this, as always with a new variant, there are many things that we just cannot know at this early stage. But our scientists are learning more hour by hour. And it does appear that Omicron spreads very rapidly and can be spread between people who are double vaccinated. There is also a very extensive mutation, which means it diverges quite significantly from previous configurations of the virus. And as a result, it might at least in part reduce the protection of our vaccines over time. We're not going to stop people traveling. I want to stress that we're not going to stop people traveling, but we will require anyone who enters the UK to take a PCR test by the end of the second day after their arrival and to self-isolate until they have a negative result. Second, we need to slow down the spread of this variant here in the UK because measures at the border can only ever minimize and delay the arrival of a new variant rather than stop it altogether. So in addition to the measures we're already taking to locate those who've been in countries of concern over the last 10 days, we will require all contacts of those who test positive with a, su a suspected case of Omicron to self-isolate for 10 days, regardless of your vaccination status. We will also go further in asking all of you to help contain the spread of this variant by tightening up the rules on face coverings in shops and on public transport. Okay, that's British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing uh, some of the steps they're taking to try to stay a step ahead of this. So how can we try to stay a step ahead of this? How did we end up with this variant in the first place? And what kind of a response is necessary? Joining us for some perspective on that side of things is Dr. Zane Chagley, an infectious disease physician at St. Joseph's in Hamilton, also an associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Chagley, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey. 
it was kind of scenario I think maybe we were all sort of fingers crossed hoping to avoid, but you know, hope's not a strategy, I guess, either. Was was maybe this inevitable to some extent? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there were there was going to be consequences of, of neglecting vaccinating and and pretending everything was going to be okay in parts of the world where vaccine rates are low, where a lot of people live with underlying medical conditions like HIV, where there's you know poverty, and and we know this disease has struck the people at the the lowest end of the economic ladder as as hard as anyone else. Um, you know, a lot of us knew that something was coming. We saw a, a prior variant in South Africa in, in beta and another one in C12. And, you know, those were relative false alarms in a sense. But, uh, but you know, that variation was going to continue to happen if we didn't address the underlying problem. And, and here we are today with a variant that seems like it may have been from a chronically infected patient mm-hmm. that, uh, that then disseminated out into the, the real world. Now, in terms of where we're at right now, and I, I think it's trying to find that balance between, you know, genuine concern and caution, but also maybe waiting, being patient, not overreacting yet at this point. But what we know does seem problematic. The mutations uh, that, that this particular variant has are, are associated with those things we're worried about, like transmissibility or immune evasiveness. What have you seen so far that, that concerns you? What are you still watching for, waiting to find out? Yeah, so you know we've had lots of variants, and you know the whole map of them genomically, and and some have had a lot of mutation. I think the difference here is, number one, it's been described in a period of rapid, rapid growth, which really you know in reality is showing that uh, you know that this may have an advantage over what's circulating predominantly Delta. Um, and number two, yeah, just the fact that it it has not only what we think would be the the skeleton of uh, of uh, variant that could, you know, infect faster or potentially even, you know, evade some degree of immunity, but it seems to be infecting a number of people in reality. And and again, that combination of the two is the early red flag that something is going on here. It's not just the virus itself, but it seems to be a little bit about how it's spreading and, and really, you know, how it became a fairly, you know, rapid growth in the Gauteng region of South Africa and, and really starting to show up in other regions of South Africa as well. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because South Africa, and I think to its credit, has been very vigorous in, in trying to understand what they have on their hands. They've been very open and sharing all of this. And, and I think, you know, their quick work could make a huge difference internationally, mm. but inevitably some of the the blowback falls on them, right? The the travel restrictions and, and all of that. So what, what do you make of that side of it? Yeah, I mean, look, there's nothing to say that this originated in South Africa. They were the first to notify. And again, they're the canary in the coal mine because they are, you know, one of the few places in the, the African subcontinent that has access to high-level genomic surveillance that is doing kind of ongoing surveillance of the population. Uh, and, you know, they often pick up with what's happening in the continent. And so, you know, you, you, even though the blame is being placed on them, and certainly some of the growth they're seeing is, is being, is, you know, is being described in South Africa, it may not be the origin, right? It may be mm-hmm. Southern Africa, but, you know, we have a case apparently in Belgium that is from Egypt, which is 6,000 kilometers away from Johannesburg. Right. Um, you know, this may have been circulating in the African continent for some time. It's just, again, South South Africa discovered it and it agreed. Like it's it's egregious that we ask countries to share their data, to be international partners, to be, you know, alert for something going on. And the response inevitably across the board is, well, just don't travel here anymore. Uh, and uh, and you know, you guys have to figure it out yourselves now. When it comes to to, you know, you touched on vaccine equity um, and access mm-hmm. to vaccines. And and I wonder now if this poses even more of a challenge because I think it a underscores the importance of vaccinating the world, but it's certainly almost going to increase the demand for booster shots in mm-hmm. countries like Canada. So we're 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 in a bit of a, a tug of war in that sense, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and you know, again, you know, it, there are uh, uh, places in, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, South Africa is probably, again, the prototype of one that's been able to approach vaccines relatively okay and, and have good mm-hmm. access to its population. But, but you know, places surrounding like Namibia, Botswana, Mozambique, which have had very minimal access to vaccines and, and have really, you know, also suffered from the consequences of medical distrust as well. Um, but, uh 
you know, it, it is that, right? You know, again, if our global response is going to be, well, we need to revaccinate ourselves and, and use the supply of incoming vaccine again to direct them into boosting our population so that we as individuals can stand up uh, and not suffer the consequences of this, it's missing the point, right? You know, this, there's no, there's no, uh, uh, you know, this is not going to be the last one. There's no guarantee this is the end of it, right? If we don't continue to turn around, you know, look, in two months, we might be having the same conversation again saying, oh, why did this happen? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this puts a lens on what many of us in the scientific community have been talking about, about rational use of booster campaigns, using it in people at the highest medical risk, but understanding the stockpiling of vaccines has significant challenges to global supply. And, and you know, unfortunately, as a Canadian, we generate zero vaccines for the world, yet are a complete consumer of everything that's come to our soil. So, you know, we have a duty and responsibility as a taking nation to say, how much are we willing to take versus how much are we willing to either give back to COVAX or not order in order to make sure that those orders get filled in places that are really in desperate need, that are not getting their supply. It's an important side of it. And, you know, this comes at a challenging time, obviously. I mean, Canada has been relatively stable, although Ontario, Quebec, some parts of Canada have seen case increases as of late. Obviously, there's some European countries that are not doing quite well at the moment. Uh, and this is all before whatever challenge this this variant might pose to us. Plus, we've got, you know, the, the challenging winter months ahead. So th- this could be um, a rocky few months here. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, there there may be some element of waning and, and, you know, so be it. If people have more symptomatic illness, you know, is that going to really change a lot in a young person? We know in Ontario, even despite everything that's happened to date, there's been nine people in the ICU total in the last 11 months in the vaccine era that have been fully vaccinated and six that have died. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to put those numbers in the context of how we then approach our decisions over the coming weeks and months, especially as we're a center in the world that can actually real-time monitor our vaccine effectiveness. We get reports every two weeks. But again, that rationalism is, is going to be important moving forward. Uh, and, you know, there are still great reasons for people to get their first two doses, which is going to be even more important moving forward. Um, but again, we have to start taking a look at this pragmatically. What are vaccines going to change about what's coming up over the next three to four months? Uh, and I would argue significantly that getting one or two doses into people that are, you know, have not been vaccinated is going to be a heck of a lot more important than getting low risk under 50 year olds with a third dose of vaccine where, you know, the, the consequences of it aren't going to necessarily lead to any healthcare utilization uh, other than, you know, people feeling a bit unwell and being at home for a few more days. You know, Canada is, is an interesting position because, as you say, I mean, we're, we're big consumers of vaccines, we're big purchasers of vaccines, but we're not really producing them. And and maybe that's why we've sort of left it to others to sort out uh, the, the countries where vaccines are being produced and the companies that are producing them. But what what role do you think Canada can play here? Look, I, I give you the example of India, right? India... Yeah. Uh, gave vaccines to Canada as part of our initial AstraZeneca COVID shield rollout. Um, They went through a devastating Delta wave where there's estimates of 5 million people that have died. And guess what? After going through their population, after manufacturing their own vaccines for nearly, you know, their entire population, they are giving back to COVAX because they know that's the ethical thing to do, that their contracts need to fill to fill the COVAX network. And I think that is an example to us, right? We stockpiled vaccines. A lot of people are saying, well, we have these vaccines on our soil. They're going to expire. We may as well use them. Well, yeah, okay, fine. You can make the argument for that. But the, the, the underlying question is, is, why do we have a stockpile of vaccines? Why are there 14 million doses lying about in Canada? And we've wasted a million doses in the vaccine campaign so far. You know, those are real fundamental questions that we have to answer and, and be accountable for. And, and again, this variant is just showing us how fragile the situation can get without a global pandemic plan. Canada needs new fighter jets. This has been true for a very long time. I mean, it was probably true 20 years ago when we uh, made the decision to upgrade, to make some uh, improvements to our existing fleet of CF-18s to keep them flying. You would have thought now 20 years later, we would have had this all sorted out. In 2010, the Harper government was close to purchasing 65 F-35s. We almost had new fighter jets uh, in 2010. That went sideways. 
It was left to the new liberal government in 2015 uh, to take on. The liberals had vowed, in fact, that they were not going to purchase the F-35s. They were going to hold an open competition, an open competition that ended up including the F-35s. Fast forward to this week. Here we are six years after the liberals were elected. Canada has told Boeing that its contender for this fighter jet contract do not meet our required standards. So that means the F-18 Super Hornet is out comes down to the F-35 or a fighter jet made by Saab based out of Sweden. Sweden is not a NATO member, or of course, a NORAD member. And so it seems likely that 11 years after we were close to purchasing F-35s, that we're going to end up purchasing F-35s anyway. So what a, a debacle this has all become. Uh, certainly our next guest has been watching all of this with much frustration. Richard Shamuka is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Richard, thank you so much for joining us here on the Roy Green program. Thanks for joining us here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I mean, I don't know if I need to be here anymore. You've done a great synopsis of where we're at today. I appreciate so. that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I get that procurement is not easy, and, and other countries probably have their own challenges, but whether it's fighter jets or helicopters, whatever, Richard, I mean, we just seem really bad at this. It's, I would probably characterize it as the worst uh, Canadian procurement, uh, military procurement that we've ever done. Like, it's, it's utterly shocking that we're at this age. To give a bit of, like, context, uh, Finland is next week, I believe, about to announce the result of their next-generation fighter competition. It took them four years. It took Switzerland about four years. It took Belgium about five years. Most countries do it in under five years. This stage, if we look at, like, the, the proper assessment start for a next-generation fighter, uh, Canada started around 2009. So we're at 12. Uh, it could drag on for n maybe another half year at this stage. So, and and we've had three, if not four, assessments, depending on how you kind of calculate things out at this stage. And they basically all say that we should buy the F thirty five. So, I mean, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty sad kind of indictment of our of, of our current uh, procurement system. Well, it is. I mean, even if we go back to 2000, and I mean, even by that point, it was obvious the CF-18s were aging. So what we did at the time, I think, was just to, you know, make improvements to ensure that they could keep flying. But I mean, even in the year 2000, right, 20 years ago, we kind of knew that we're going to need new fighter jets here. Yeah. And, and I mean, at that time, there wasn't really a replacement on the board, uh, because partly because of what happened in the United States they kind of delayed their own sort of replacement programs, and a lot of other countries were waiting for that, and that would eventually become the F-35, um, because uh, the United States is the largest um, Western uh, airplane manufacturer, right, for fighters and whatnot, and so they kind of they kind of dominate the market, if that makes sense, and especially for Canada, because of our, you know, our geo-strategic position just north of the United States, and, and us being part of NORAD, it really puts a lot of pressure on us to look at what the Americans are doing and sort of follow their lead, if that makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of cost involved keeping us integrated, you know, in a common defense kind of organization, NORAD, and in and a posture. And, and so in going with American often makes the most sense. Okay, so 2010, it, it seemed as though the government had landed on the F-35. And so obviously it was, it was still five years before the liberals took power and took a much different direction. Talk a bit about what delayed that, that decision then, some of the concerns that arose about the F-35 and whether, whether those concerns had any uh, validity to them. Absolutely. So in 2010 wasn't a great year for the what's called the Joint Strike Fighter Program, which the F-35 is basically the, the core part of. And there was a significant cost increase. There was uh, questions about when they were actually going to deliver fighters. And there was a lot of cost escalation in that specific time frame. From around 2010 to 2015, there was a fair bit of uncertainty with the program. And in Canada, that kind of got reflected in two reports. One was done by the Office of the Auditor General, the OAG, and the other one was by the... And in both cases, they produced reports that suggested that the cost that DND was uh, sorry, Department of National Defense in Canada was under, uh, were kind of hiding some of the costs and also that the cost would be much, much greater than they had anticipated. Um, 
Those were not the most accurate. Uh, if you look at this, particularly the parliamentary budget officer, they started, they tried using some sort of way to estimate the cost in the future. And, and they estimated a cost that was l- probably three to four times greater than what the uh, national defense had, had sort of identified. And since then, now we're, you know, we're almost nine years in the, uh, since then, though what the parliamentary budget officer predicted never came to pass. So the cost is pretty much around within 10% of what Department of National Defense had suggested way back in 2010. So that's, but we didn't know that at the time, right? And so in 2012, uh, the Harper government did what was called the reset, and they set up a whole new committee structure and whatnot to reassess, you know, what was, what would be our next, next generation, next generation fighter, go over the numbers. They brought in PricewaterhouseCoopers to take a look at the numbers. Based on that, two years later, they came right back and said, well, you should buy the F-35, and the Harper government actually almost did it. They they were on the verge of buying four fighters until it got leaked in the United States, and they just shelved it until after the election in 2015. But as we know, they lost that election. Yeah, it, it became politicized, and, and I think the liberals kind of portrayed this as, you know, these are Harper's jets, and we're not going to buy Harper's jets, we're going to buy some different jets, which seemed likely to be the Boeing Super Hornets. Now, I, <laughs> maybe you can tell about what's transpired since then. I know there was a Bombardier-Boeing situation, maybe that's affected the government's view, but how did we go from, it's not going to be the F-35s, it'll be Boeing Super Hornets, to now Boeing's out, and it's probably going to be the F-35s after all? I'll try to do this short because I could pack a lot of information. Because <laughs> yes, probably. So, uh, obviously, obviously the the, um, the Trudeau government they go and say, well, we're going to buy a, uh, a more affordable aircraft that was more appropriate to Canada's needs. There's something thereabouts, right? Um, I mean, they the government had just done an assessment that said, no, this F-35 is the cheapest aircraft, most capable. Uh, the industrial benefit size were particularly appealing to Canada because we would get a large amount of contracts. Or Canada could get a large amount of contracts, which they were already in Canada building parts for the F-35s in the United States and elsewhere. So they need to find a way to get out of this kind of dilemma or this kind of uh, situation they put themselves in. And so they invented, literally invented a capability gap that Canada needed a whole bunch of extra fighters really quickly because we didn't have enough fighters to meet our NORAD and uh, NATO defense commitments, which... We've always had this kind of issue. Nobody's really cared. And, I mean, since then, we we have a much worse capability gap because we don't have pilots or maintainers. But that didn't matter. They needed a way to kind of get out of this really ill-conceived election promise. So they decided we're going to sole source 18 uh, Super Hornets from the United States, saying that well, these are good enough, and it was in service, ignoring the fact that the F-35 was basically in service in the U.S. anyway. Uh, and because of what you said, as, uh, because of what happened with Bombardier, uh, and in addition that they had, they had kind of been told that the cost of the Super Hornet was much less, but when they were given the actual cost, because you actually don't buy the aircraft from the manufacturer, you actually buy from the U.S. government who buys from manufacturer. It's a bit of a weird system. Anyway, they got the sticker shock of basically aircraft that were three times, two to three times the cost of what they had expected them to be. And so they immediately put the brakes on that, and that's, when we bought secondhand Australian uh, Hornets that they were retiring because they were buying F-35. So we were taking the Australia's old jets in order to meet this fictional capability gap. And then they met their, you know, to, to fill this gap, which they actually didn't really care that much about. And then, then they started their main competition. That was in uh, 2018, I believe. And then they started the main sort of doing the... Um, putting out the request for proposals, uh, I believe, in 2019 for where the actual competition to replace uh, the, the CF-18s that we have now. So, look, first of all, I mean, is there, is there any chance at all? It just seems completely implausible. Is there any chance we end up buying Saab Swedish fighter jets? Uh, I mean, I could quote Dumb and Dumber and say, so you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> right. Um, I think it's exceedingly unlikely. I think uh, there's so many reasons why. Uh, number one, Canadian industry is really heavily uh, enmeshed with the Joint Strike Fighter program. You would see cancellations of a lot of really lucrative subcontracts that we do in Canada in a lot of key writings. 
especially in Ontario and British Columbia. Uh, that's a big. That's kind of a reason why. Capability-wise, it's not even close. Like, I mean, that's that's one of the biggest issues uh, between the two is that the Griffin doesn't meet much or many of the key uh, considerations for the Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force, especially on range interoperability with the United States on NORAD. We we just we would be spending billions just to we'd buy these fighters or I mean God forbid build them in places in Canada, which would be horrendously expensive. Uh, we'd basically build a line just to build eighty eight jets and then shut it down immediately, which would be insanely expensive. Uh, and then we would have to upgrade them to meet to be able to work in our own defense network across Canada. So uh you know, it, this is a cabinet decision. Like, this isn't a decision where there's a process where, you know, the bureaucracy will recommend something and that's the decision. Actually, it has to go to cabinet. Cabinet will make the final decision, right? So there's a chance. But uh, given all these factors, and especially with the need to have Canada's relations kind of maintained, so to speak, you know, we, we were looking at the uh, electric vehicle tax credit negotiations last week or two weeks ago with the Three Amigos Summit, stuff like that. I think it's exceedingly unlikely that we will select the Griffin, uh, but, you know, stranger things have happened. I mean, look at this whole file. Now, I'll preface all of this by saying that when it comes to school-aged children and content that they may be exposed to or they may discuss, it should be age-appropriate. I, I get that, and, and certain things might not make sense for, for school-aged kids, depending on what it is. But these two books, these two authors, certainly seem like great subjects of conversation for high school age girls. There was a book club that was set up a few years ago. It's called A Room of Your Own Book Club. And, and it's for high school age girls to get together in, in different cities uh, to talk about different books, but also to talk to the authors, to have an audience, a virtual audience with some of these authors. So there were two events in question that have caused a great deal of controversy, not because of the authors, I think in the minds of most, but really more so the reaction from Canada's largest school board, the Toronto District School Board, which decided that these two books, these two authors, were off limits. One of them is Marie Hennon, a prominent criminal defense attorney who's written a new memoir. And if I could have the opportunity on my own program to speak with Marie Hennon and sort of talk to her specifically about the idea of what she hoped young girls would take from her story and from her book. But I also hope that the message that is taken away is that you march to the beat of your own drama and you do you. You be who you are and you do that unapologetically. And you can succeed uh, doing that on your own terms, being who you are. Uh, I hope that's what mm -hmm. uh, comes across. And to be honest, that was one of the motivations for writing the book. It's a great message. The Toronto District School Board, however, had a problem with the fact that Marie Hennon defended Gian Gomeshi. That somehow that reflects on her. I think it's, it's certainly a smear of, of Marie Hennon. It's a misunderstanding of how our criminal justice system works. Sends a terrible message to these young girls. But it didn't end there. So coming up in February... Students in this book club are going to have an opportunity to hear from Nadia Murad. She's the author of a book, The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity, My Fight Against the Islamic State. She's the recipient of the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize awarded to her uh, because of her organization, Nadia's Initiative, it's called, which advocates for survivors of sexual violence. Again, an incredible story, an inspirational story. But get this, the Toronto District School Board decided that this too would be off limits because this talk about the Islamic State could foster Islamophobia, which is preposterous. So that's, that's what happened. Now, joining us to talk more about these controversies and about the book club itself, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Tanya Marie Lee. She is the founder of this book club. Again, it's called A Room of Your Own. Tanya, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, tell us about the book club. I think this is really neat what you started out there. I think this was uh, a few years ago you started this. Tell us a bit more, first of all, about uh, A Room of Your Own, this book club. 
So I started this book club um, four years ago. It's actually going on five years in January. We started on a Friday the 13th. We had 15 young women in grade eight. What makes this book club special is that the young women receive the books six to eight weeks in advance for free. So I get sponsorship um, to pay for the books. And they read the books. They discuss it with their teachers. Their teachers prep them. And well, they they just talk about the books ahead of time and get their questions ready. And then um, the young women, we used to meet at a library, Lillian H. Smith Library in Toronto, before the pandemic. And they got a chance to speak to the author about the book they just read. And they they, um, had great discussions with the author. We focused on mental health and wellness. So um, so we always had, uh, when the psychiatrist was available, her name was Dr. Ken Wang, she would come and she would answer all mental health questions. And believe me, there were plenty. And we'd have pizza and we have snacks and we have goodies and we would have activities. And I aimed this book club at young women who come from low-income areas around Toronto. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a while, and maybe this is the first time a lot of people have heard of this book club because of these two controversies. So one of them involved Marie Hennon, who's a high-profile defense attorney. She's written a new book. I actually had Marie Hennon on my own show recently. I think she's she's a fascinating person. And Nadia Murad, uh, who was abducted by uh, members of the Islamic State militant group. She's a Nobel laureate. So these seem like two incredible authors, incredible stories for, for young girls to hear. But Tell us what happened then once the Toronto District School Board became aware of these events. Well, what happened was there was an agreement to have these book clubs, and then they pulled out at the last minute for the Marie Hennon Book Club, and they said the equity department um, didn't want the young women participating in the book club from the TDSB because Marie Hennon um, was the attorney for John Gameshi. And so I was very upset over that. And they told me, well, how are you explaining this to little girls? So I, at first I was really shocked and I couldn't believe that they would make a decision like that. And then they went on to talk about the Nadia Morad book and that they wouldn't want to have her there either because the title was problematic of the book because they said it could promote Islamophobia. And, okay, right away, I said, wait a second, Uh, the Islamic State means ISIS. So then I I shot the person like an email, and I said, listen, um, the Islamic State means ISIS. I'm not sure if um, the department is aware of that. Maybe they should be aware of that. Um, Do you know what ISIS did to ordinary Muslims? Mm -hmm. What's going on? And then the next day, I received an email with, uh, with a PDF about the equity policies um, with regards to presentations and stuff with the TDSC students. Wow. And yeah, I think that that reaction obviously surprised you. It surprised a lot of people. So as of now, it, from what I've read, it sounds like maybe they've they've backed down a little with regard to Marie Hennon, but, but not yet with regard to Nadia Murad. So what's happened in, in recent days that you can tell us? Well, what happened was they actually read the Marie Hennon book and they realized just how amazing this woman is and what a role model she is for young women and that she actually talks about the law and that everyone is entitled to an attorney and that until you are found guilty, you are innocent. So um, that's the, that's the basis of democracy. That's the basis of our justice system. And everybody has to adhere to that. Um, and they are now in the process of reading the Nadia Murad book. So um, they'll find that it does not promote Islamophobia at all. Um, so I am pretty positive that they'll come back with a yes. What about the message this all sends, right? I mean, it, it, it was a very kind of confused response, I think, from, from the TDSB. And the fact that they came to these judgments, these conclusions, without even having read the books, I mean, it's, what kind of message do you think that sends? Well, it talks a lot about the importance of reading. Right. And that we should not judge a book by its cover. Exactly. <laughs> and that we all need to read, educate ourselves, and be able to speak um, on the subject matter and not 
make these assumptions based on biased beliefs. So it's a, a learning lesson for all of us. Yeah, I think it really is. I do wonder in terms of, you know, those those young women that are a part of this book club, surely they must be aware of some of this controversy, you know, the fact that maybe it's it's in the news, they must be aware of that. I mean, have, have they said anything or what kind of response have you got from them? Well, um, from book club members, um, and that's all across Canada, they're really concerned about censorship and they yeah. don't believe in it. Um, so they talked about um, censorship when I had the Marie Hennon book club on November 18th, and they actually asked Marie Hennon um, about her her response to all of this. And so uh, and Marie Hennon talked to them about how she felt um, about that books are empowering and uh, we should all be able to read. And, and then once again, she reiterated that, you know what, um, no one is guilty and then proven innocent. Everyone's innocent and then proven guilty if that's the case yeah. in the justice system. And so that's what we have to do. Yeah, it, it, you know, she's as I said earlier, she's such a, I think a remarkable person. I, I think a real uh, role model for young women, and maybe that was one of the the more surprising aspects to the initial reaction. I think this will be great for this kind of a book club. From your perspective, Tanya, and you've been doing this for a while. I would imagine this is the first controversy like this you've encountered, and now the fact that it's made headlines across Canada, even internationally. What have you made of all of this? Well. Everybody loves reading. Yep. <laughs> I mean, made of it like everybody likes books. Um, everybody is aware that um, censorship is a horrible thing. It's not part of, of taking part in a democracy. So that is why it um, it it was sensationalized around the world. Um, it, you know, censorship got international condemnation. So um, that's what I gather from all of that. Nobody likes censorship. Well, and, and that's encouraging to see. I, I do wonder if, to some extent anyway, maybe a large extent even, that it was a lot of this attention and pushback that maybe convinced the Toronto District School Board to to back off a little bit. Do you see a connection there, do you think? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think they would have backed down. Maybe they would have. I, like, I don't know them um, personally. Sure. Um, like, I, I'm like, honestly, I'll take that back. I don't know them personally. I don't know what their ethics are. Um, but I do believe that it was the international rebuke of their decision that forced them to actually rethink what was going on. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 